Hello, everybody, and we've lots of people from all around the world today, and welcome to this Media HQ webinar. Thank you for joining us from the Four Corners of the Globe today. I'm delighted today to be in conversation with Maliki Brown, senior story producer at the New York Times and recent winner of the Pulitzer Prize uh, for his, him, his and his team's story on um, Russian bombings in Syria. To those of you who are unacquainted with Media HQ, Media HQ is a powerful media contacts database. We eliminate all the grunt work from managing your media contacts. And in one place, you can find all of your journalists, build your lists, and send your news and analyze the results. And we've details on over 70,000 journalists. Part of our mission is to connect you with the story of journalists. We're curious, creative, driven by purpose, and that's why we want to learn more about the story behind journalists and stories behind the stories that they tell. So just some housekeeping for today. Um, the hashtag for today is hashtag HQ Convo, and the guys will share it in the chat on the right-hand side, HQ Convo. If you want to ask any formal questions when we get to the questions section, below me here, below <laughs> the screen, there's a tab for questions. You can chat in the chat in the chat side on the side, but if you have any formal questions, put them here below. Um, Describe the you know, type of journalism that you do. It, visual evidence, <coughs> excuse me, uh, is sort of the, the bedrock of what we do. Um, but we combine that, so it could be a cell phone video or it could be a satellite image. We do a lot of satellite imagery analysis and there's tons of that available out there at the moment. Um, and we work with those uh, providers. Uh, it could be like an Instagram photograph or even a tweet, a timestamp on a tweet. Right now we're working on a story <clears throat> that combines 911 calls, 911 text logs with CCTV footage that's, uh, that, that um captured an incident and last night is, I, I was you know synchronizing it all out on a spreadsheet and we're writing a story uh, based on that so it's using hard data to reconstruct events and try to uh, elicit extra reporting from it that you might not otherwise um you know see or 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 or, or, uh, or divine you know um and it could be like sometimes it's very low tech stuff like going frame by frame through a video and trying to spot differences um, in the background of what's happening or comparing, like I'll give you a very brief example of a chemical weapons attack. We had one video taken soon afterwards that showed the weapon was white in color. The more, following morning it was yellow and why is there a difference in the, in the color? It's because the thing frosts over um, and that meant that it was an active bomb which debunked lots of theories that um, you know, this thing was a staged staged chemical attack. So you're looking at the detail in all of this evidence and then wrapping that in all of the traditional reporting that, that any journalist would do, you know, dozens of witness and expert interviews, um, documentation, as I said, um, flight trackers, plane trackers, all of this sort of stuff that we can, um, weapons identification, and then using very often in our, in our investigations, we'll use the broader muscle of the, uh, a network of the New York Times uh, to bring that into our reporting and to use the resources to get onto the ground, uh, speak to witnesses, victims, etc., and sort of wrap it all. But it's founded in this idea that there's hard evidence out there that can cut through, you know, bullshit and lies um, and propaganda around certain events and, and find the truth, which is ultimately our mission. So I want to take you back to about 10 days ago, and we all have very, you know, in the path of our lives, there are momentous events that happen to us. You know, we get a big job, uh, we get married, our children are born, 
I want I want you to tell us in detail about uh, last Sunday week, uh, where you were, uh, and getting that call uh, that you you and your team had won the Pulitzer Prize. To, to tell us about it. I was here uh, at home uh, in the house that we rent out here in New Jersey, and uh, just down the down the hallway here, and I got a call at half eight in the morning from um, my boss uh, Nancy Gauss, and. Um, we knew that they it was that was Sunday. They announced them on the Monday, and we know, we know that over the weekend that they'll let people know. And she just kind of said Maliki Brown. But I thought no way, and uh, kind of a few moments of disbelief. Um, but she was incredibly excited, and then it's the penny started to drop, and um, and then she kind of told us the details that we that we had won. And um, yeah, what was, was that feeling like in your head, like the minute you heard it? Did you have an out of body experience? Yeah, it kind of was very surreal. It was a bit weird, you know, and also just kind of the, the, the way the world is at the moment. And, and it's also weird in that you're not really supposed to share it uh, with people. Um, and um, and so all of that, you know, as well. Um, but we very quickly had to click into, into sort of planning and logistics and all of that kind of stuff, like, you know, telling the team, making sure they keep it quiet, then figuring out, you know, what we do with the times because every year you know if there's a winner um or finalist they will in the pulitzers they'll bring the newsroom together and the, you know the editor will introduce the winners and you'll give a few words on the iconic red stairs in the times building and it's a lovely moment where the whole newsroom gathers together it's like you know two and a half three thousand people there um <clears throat> and it's kind of you know you know awards are grand you know it's it's not why we do it but it's but it's lovely to get them and it's kind of a moment to reflect back on the work that you've done and also to maybe resurface it as well but um you know for us as a new team it was kind of it was momentous in that like this year has been a real breakthrough for us in terms of that type of recognition um and and this type of journalism as being sort of you know I suppose it validates it if you know what I mean. In a certain did, you, way. did you rush off the phone, or was your wife decided there, or what? How did that? What happened there? Siobhan was uh, in the other room, and I, I just said, Geez, "You never guess what." <laughs> Siobhan is sort of, I don't know, doing high kicks down the corridor. But anyway, <laughs> and you rang, you rang home to, you rang home to 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 Broadford and Limerick as well. I'm sure. Yeah, I called mom and dad, um, and uh, and let them know. Um, I wasn't too sure if I could let them know, but then, um, the, you know, instead of that physical meet, they were going to do a Zoom and bring the newsroom together digitally. And they they said, you know, invite who you would bring in person. Um, so uh, shared the link with them and they tuned in that that night. I think mom is listening in now at the moment. She's mortified. Yeah, and your, and your, dad, your dad is listening in too. And uh, there's there's other uh, people from, from people from all over Ireland, a lot of people from Limerick. Um, I said this to you in the preparation for our chat that um, you know you, your family and the journalism tradition in your family um, has fascinated me for a very long time. Um, one of my first jobs in journalism was in the late 90s with your uncle Vincent and I was fascinated that when um, sometimes uh, um, in the history of a family one or two prominent figures come up and we, we might get the wrong impression or we might we might think something of them and I used to pass the sign for Broadford as I studied in UL and Vincent's name was always associated with it, but it it was it was fascinating to me to realize the strong storytelling tradition in your family. Um, it stretches back to your grandfather, a man from yep. Cork uh, in the south of Ireland. For those of you who aren't from Ireland, and uh, 
who very fascinatingly went to America and then came back um, into a business, a shop and a pub in, in Broadford. Tell us a little bit about your, your grandfather, because he had the he had the good kind of sense and instinct to collect the folklore and the stories of the people all around Broadford and, and probably was one of the starting points of the story instinct in the family. Yeah, probably. Uh, it was yeah, my, it was my great grandfather uh, was from Wheeling in Cork, and he he went to Australia and was in the uh, uh, gold mines there and came back uh, to Ireland to Ireland um, after a few years, settled down. That was in the late eighteen hundreds, I think, and settled settled down in um, Broadford, County Limerick, and that's where my grandfather was born, and he um, inherited the business. Uh, there was uh, you know built it into um, a grocery, newsagents like butchers, bakers, a little pub, snug at the back of it. So it was one of those real old style um shops and dad took that uh, took that over as well and that's where i grew up for my first 11 years or so um and and sh you're, you're at the heart of the community i suppose really so you've got a lot of people coming in and and out and you you're you you know you you're really an intimate part of the community and like even i remember sort of like the creamery time in the morning was rush hour you know in the shop um and uh and and after mass and that sort of stuff you have uh, surges of people and so um you know i think it's a real currency in a community like that it is yeah and there's there's like real real characters in the community as well every every community has their own but in a small little village like that you know there there is a real sense of community and i think broadford has a very strong community um like there's so many different activities and um like occasions for people to gather even you know um well not so much anymore but uh, in these times but um you know through through sports and they had a theater group and dad was involved in that um and uh you know i remember we had cub scouts um you know girl guides um all sorts of different things it was a great when i was growing up there was a great preschool father kelleher who, who ran sports events up in Tullalise just over the, the the hill from us um but my dad and granddad are also very much involved in the community in community um work and organizations and i think it was probably through that as well that, that they had they have a real interest in um in the community my grandfather um interviewed a lot of people back in got decades ago i suppose it was the 80s or 90s um and uh on tape and um transcribed i think vincent transcribed them and they're all all of those interviews are fascinating i've read through some of them old characters talking you know going back to sort of you know the troubles and um coming them on and you know stories from you know a, a world away it's a real sort of um like historical document that i think vincent at some point promised to make a book out of but your dad is threatening to do that now. I know he's on the line, and I'm sure I was listening to him yesterday in a brilliant folklore broadcast. I'm, I'm urging him to do it. I'd say, I'd say it'd be really good. Education was also like education was in your family um, a huge value on education. Um, with your, you know, with your father's family all going to boarding school, and um, and you know that that would have afforded huge opportunity as well. Yeah, probably was, and uh, my grandfather kind of you know worked his socks off to to uh, make that happen. You know, he was re he was really entrepreneurial. Not only did he build this business at the, with the the grocery shop, but um, he um, sort of cultivated um, 
like a, a flower and bulb and seed selling business. He would, uh, you know, he, he grew daffodils and used to send them into Limerick and up on the train to Dublin from 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 Broadford, like you know, it's a smaller place in West Limerick. He learned how to repair radios and TVs and uh, had a workshop where he was doing all of that sort of stuff as well. So, um, yeah, my aunt and um, Uncle Maliki, Vincent, and, and Dad kind of got good opportunity off the back of that. They went to Castlenock and. Um, uh, my aunt Mary went inside and into Limerick as well. Um, and so your yeah. uncle Vincent then, who was your also your godfather, and yeah. uh, to, to people who are not from Ireland who are tuned in, um, it's not an understatement to say that Vincent Brown um, is is probably one of the foremost investigative uh, journalists that this country has ever produced. Um, and you know, I, I, when I started my career in journalism 22 years ago, Vincent Brown was the person that I wanted to work for. I have a very vivid memory of when he relaunched McGill, getting it in a local shop in a small town in the west of Ireland and touching the cover and saying to my mother, I want to write for that publication, that it was such a rite of passage. Now, you either you either collapsed in a ball because he was like he was demanding, or you um you 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 survived it and you had the war wounds and you were all the better for it. And at what at what time time I know you spent a lot of time yeah, visiting Dublin and like influenced by Vincent. Um, I suppose wh when in your development did it dawn on you like the significance of of, of Vincent's profile and his career and, and and what that like other than him being your uncle and your godfather that there was another meaning to it. I think it it, it either rubs off or it's drummed in over time. Um, and um, you know, I I wasn't you know somebody who followed current affairs avidly or read read a lot my dad was and and mom was interested and uh, vincent obviously and i suppose just by dint of being in the family followed his career and took an interest in it and you know took an interest in the sunday tribune and what he was writing at the irish times and and mcgill when that was relaunched as well and then you know, of course, you just kind of pick up, you know, um, stories about sort of the, the arms trial issue that they did that sold 83,000 copies and, and things like that and various different stories um, that they, they features that they published in McGill over the years and you kind of find those and you just kind of pick it up and have an interest. But I think it's when I went, I like, actually, funnily enough, it's when I left Ireland and went traveling and uh, kind of opened my eyes to probably um, a little bit more areas of interest and took more of an interest. And I remember I used to, Vincent had a radio program <clears throat> on RTE One for about 10 years. And uh, that would be on when I was going to work in Australia. And so I used to listen in and I kind of gradually got more interested. And when I, when I was coming back, he was starting up Village Magazine, and I kind of took an interest then. I was interested in changing. I was doing computer working as a yeah. Computer tell us program. a little bit about that because, like, you know, it's fascinating to me that somebody like you know, just as we've established, the storytelling tradition was very strong in your family, and you know, you couldn't have had a better like you know name example of someone in your family if if they can do it that you can do it. But you took a different path. You you decided to study software engineering. And for a large part of your career, like it's worth saying that you were computer programming up to 10 years ago, um, yeah. as you sit with a Pulitzer Prize today. And that, you know, this thing of, you know, people wanting to get into a career and it to be instant, it wasn't that way for you. No, absolutely not. Like I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a good writer. You know, I was I was interested in um, in in history and various different things, but I gravitated towards the sciences and that led me into engineering. 
a cousin of mine was doing engineering and influenced me as well. And um, uh, but then I realized I didn't really like it. But I ended up doing computer programming because it was sort of the IT boom in the late nineties. And um, you know, I was I was handy enough for computer programming, I think. But um, uh, and so I kind of ended up just doing that. And then, of course, like you make friends and it's like mighty crack and it's it's just great fun. Um, and we and, and epiphany, like or did you like did you know when you were writing thousands of lines of SAP code that you know what I'm not really you know Maslow is nowhere near on my reference here I'm not self-actualizing or did you get to a day and think God there has to be more to it than this or or, or where did the switch come? Um, I, this it wasn't fulfilling for me, you know, writing, um, you know. I like the creative aspect of it because it is something that's tangible that you can actually create and, and you see working and that kind of stuff. And that, that was interesting to me. Um, but the application of it to these multinationals, you know, um, you know, just to build efficiencies in their systems. And I remember one day vividly where I was, you know, I was sitting down with a chap and he was describing his job to me and I realized I'm actually writing a computer program to replace his job. And, and that was kind of, you know, the final straw. I, I hadn't, I hadn't been, you know, I knew that I want, it was a means to an end and that I wanted to sort of move on and try, try something else. Um, I remember it was a co confluence of events. I remember watching an interview with Mary Robinson around that time as well. And she was, you know, talking about, um, sort of wanting to do something worthwhile in her life. It's not that computer programming isn't worthwhile, but it, wa it wasn't fulfilling me. And I think it was probably influenced by mom who does a lot of um, voluntary work as well. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and dad too and, and stuff. And I just kind of wanted to do something that was probably a bit more meaningful to me. And I wasn't sure what that was. I thought yeah, it might be humanitarian work. Um, I was interested in doing that. It might've been writing. So I, I kind of, I took, these psychometric tests. I went back out to UCD and spoke to a career guidance person and then talked to people in various different professions, talked to Vincent a bit as well. And then he was like, well, why don't you, because you can make money programming, why don't you keep doing that and start writing freelance and see if you like it? And so that's what I started doing with Village. I'm curious about that. You took a psychometric test. That's, that was, that's a real engineer's thing to do. To figure out <laughs> sure, I don't know. Otherwise, I was kind of talking <laughs> ideas out of thin air, you know? But, um, and, you, and you decided you wanted to go and study international relations in University of Limerick, and I think Vincent tried to talk you out of that. Yes, he did. Uh, how did you find that out? Um, <laughs> he um, he did. I was kind of doing the odd freelance piece here and there for Village, and I had applied to that course while I was traveling, actually, and, and got accepted by I deferred it for a year. So it was on my mind. Um, and Vincent said, here, I'll, I'll pay you a pittance, but it'll be a pittance more than you're being paid to do a master's and you learn something here. But I decided to go down and do it anyway. And I, I'm glad I did because, um, you know, I kind of helped formalize sort of research and writing and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, Vincent uh, kept the job open uh, when, when I finished that up. And he kind of, it was a kind of a quid pro quo. He was interested in having a better website and I needed training and that kind of stuff. So. And what was the mad world of, so you went into, in about 2006, um, your uncle had a publication called Village Magazine, and yeah. um, it was his senior experience, and I think, as you said to me, kind of a raggle-taggle bunch of young, enthusiastic people who were very raw. Um, I could imagine that was quite an intense experience. 
It was at the point where I got, you know, joined. Um, it was kind of moving from a, a weekly to a monthly magazine, um, and you know there were fewer staff. And you, yeah, it was. I mean, like talk about being thrown into the deep end, you know, to use a cliche, but it, it really was that. And um, you know, there was a lot of expectation. There was a lot of responsibility on probably a young staff who, who kind of knew a bit about production and me speaking personally I knew nothing about it um but you kind of learn all aspects of it in a small little team like that you know you, you and Vincent for me personally was very inclusive you know we would leave the office and go for walks and you talk about sort of the business side of it and advertising strategy and revenue as well as sort of uh, reporting and all of that and this was all around the time of I remember the the, the Bertie gate and the Bertie confrontation and um, uh, that was Bertie Ahern, Ireland's Taoiseach Prime Minister, who was caught up in a financial scandal. Um, so it was interesting to observe all of that and just learn from him. And of course, you have him editing your pieces as well. Um, and he, you learn, as you say, if you come, you might come out war wounded, but you've, you've learned a fair bit. Yeah, and like, were you spared the intensity of like, look, I I, I can ask because I, I, I had that experience with Vincent when I met him first. I was terrified. And uh, like, there was that thing where it would either snap you in half I, or you'd be a much better I reporter or journalist after it. Was him? No. Were you, were you spared? I don't think you got a family or did you get you it? definitely weren't spared you were family. It, um, because everybody was on an equal footing and he, he demanded very high standards, you know, of people. Um, and and rightfully so in this business, you know. Um, so you know, you, you screw up their their costs um, to that. But um, so no, I don't. I don't think there wasn't like special dispensation or anything like that. No. Yeah. So so um, then along came Mark Little. Mark Little, um, who was a journalist um, in our national broadcaster here. Um, had an idea um, for a social news agency called Storyful, um, and you you joined the team at a certain point of that, and it was very exciting. It was very cutting edge. Um, I think there was a real sense that it was something new. I remember I remember running a conference around then on the future of the media, and you either bought into the gospel as Mark was telling it, or you were skeptical. And I, I remember the the late uh, Pat Geraghty of Munster Rugby addressing Mark at a conference, telling him he thought he sounded like Harry Potter, uh, gate, gatekeepers and whatnot. And um, tell us what like what it was like joining Storyful then, and I suppose you know beginning to realize that maybe some of your background in process and software with this yeah I loved it journalism um, I was things attracted to, to it from the get-go I met Gavin Sheridan um, I had known Gavin because after Village I'd set up a, a kind of a blog called Politico with Vincent and was archiving old magazines and trying to make a go of that and Gav was Gavin Sheridan was also kind of blogging and Mark Coughlin and we kind of you know met and we were on the fringe you know we weren't mainstream Irish journalists by any uh, matter of means or even journalists probably um, but um, Gav started working uh, with uh, Mark Little and I had met Mark um, uh, you know before this but I but I also just went for a, a pint with Gav to find out like what how how do you do what you do and he showed me an airstrike that day that had happened in Libya the Libya um, 
conflict was was raging and uh, he showed me satellite imagery he had ordered up and then he showed me other footage from on the ground and sources that he had spoken to and i was enthralled by all of this and um uh, uh and then you know went back to them and, and joined them and so it was just fascinating but it was a bit ramshackle because there was no system there was no process uh the validation was very rough and ready in those early days and so over time we all together including david clinch over here in the us kind of built you know a sort of a gold standard verification system journalism that was ultimately transparent about what we knew and what we didn't know what was emerging in very fluid situations um but it was always as mark said about getting closer to the story and social media for the first time enabled us to do that and not rely on reports that might in older and old olden times come from a local local journalism local press to sort of national press to regional press to international press um now you could get direct to the source and if you could build technology about around that as well you could listen to social media and identify events as they're happening as well and it's best when you can kind of get in and and um and find witnesses in the moment as much as you you can and if it's safe for them to respond to you How, how useful was your software background? And like, look, we at Media HQ, we build software products all of the time. And I'm I'm well off okay with the notion of, um, you know, having process, having patience, having method, having repeatable method, having tech to have repeatable method to get uh, an outcome. It's not something that you associate with traditional journalism, but that if you if you, if you have the tools that can give you quality outcomes, then it works. And it, it seems a very, yeah, um, I mean, very like, much aligned like with said a, before, with a kind of a journalism is the business of information. And, you know, having worked in information technology, I suppose, all of those methods that you're talking about, um, I could identify maybe as a business process. And then, you know, all, all of the, all of us together then would, would build the system that, uh, or the, you know, with technologists, you know, it's kind of like I was on the flip side. I wasn't coding the pages, but identifying like maybe what could be built and what standards we should put in place. And there's Markham Nolan, Gavin Sheridan, uh, Anya Kerr, Phelan McMahon. There was a whole bunch of people who were involved in that, Dermot Casey, um, in the early days. Um, it kind of is yeah, management it's all it's rooted in, kind of in into one. traditional journalism as, as well in answering the basic questions of where did something happen when did it happen who's involved who took this why did they take it what's happening all of that sort of stuff is wrapped into it but slowly essentially what we were doing because we were improving our standards is we're selling as a news agency which is what the business was or became um we're selling trust through our expertise in this unknown entity which is social media or social journalism to mainstream news outlets like channel 4 abc news in us in, in in the us and australia new york times was a very early client and then google uh, came on board as well because a lot of this the arab spring was happening on youtube and they wanted a company like us to um curate if you like um playlists of of, of what was happening in these uh, these countries and so that's what we were selling, you know, it, it was just kind of a layer of trust. 
and it was it was part of the was part of the chaos. This notion that there was no platinum standard, and people wanted different services, and you know, to establish a niche and to get kind of you know capital flowing and establish the product, there was different things. There was, I think, news organizations, organizations understood kind of there was value here, but didn't things. know how to capture it. And like the catchphrase back then was, "We can't independently verify these villages that use or, sorry these images." Uh, this that used to drive us mad because you can if you actually put some work i.e journalism and reporting into it um but you know i sent i think we we ended up kind of doing that heavy lift so that uh, on breaking news stories so that uh, news organizations could run with it and then it, it kind of it moved into like we did some documentaries with channel four where we did a lot of research with them um on the early days of the Arab uh, of the syrian uprising and you know, torture in Syria and things like, like hard-hitting subjects like that. And so we began to identify that, you know, opportunities in the more investigative realm there as well. So you left there and just, just I suppose, everybody who's tuned in, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a short while, we're going to get absolutely in detail into the Pulitzer Prize um, winning story um, and also the story that won the Emmy, the story about the Las Vegas shootings. And I suppose just to warn people, it, we'll get into that in a while, there's some of that stuff is, is, is very gruesome. And just to put a health warning on that, we'll be showing some slides. But um, um, what I suppose the, when you left there, then you, you had a short stint. Um, well, you, you had a stint. Yes, in it was. Uh, that was, that was similar time was where Storyful was kind of behind a newswire um, reportedly was, excuse me, either heartbreaking news in the moment on Twitter um, with, um, led by a journalist called Andy Carvin, who described himself as a sort of a disc jockey of the Arab Spring, where as stories were unfolding, he would bring people who were on the streets or like witnesses, witnesses to something or subject matter experts into a conversation on Twitter and and hash it out, uh, you know, live and develop, develop it. And, I mean, two days after we started, the Charlie Hebdo um, magazine shooting in France happened. Um, and because we had spent a month kind of, again, setting up, you know, our, our systems, basically, um, you know, we were able to respond to that fairly quickly. And that kind of helped make a name for ourselves that in a breaking news moment on Twitter, if you turn to reportedly, you would you would get threads. And we started using Twitter threads, the, the reply to your previous tweet um, that became one of our sort of storytelling um you know methods as well and then because we were very public um what i found is that a number of um sources would come to us if you opened up your dms and we would get leads on various different stories and so i started doing again more sort of investigative pieces um around arms traffic not arms trafficking but arms sales and exports and um uh, and also we were looking at yemen um very closely at the time we did a daily sort of digest of what was happening in yemen yemen in the first uh, 30 days uh, of that conflict and uh unbeknownst to many italians there was a company in sardinia that was exporting lots of bombs to saudi arabia and they were being used in indiscriminate attacks on civilians and we managed to break that story and track, you know, the the uh, the ships uh, and get documents showing uh, the sales and the licenses, and then track the uh, bombs using the from fragments on the ground, um, and and map map those out um, and tell that story. And that, you know, that was that was a great one. I followed up on that in the Times then because those exports uh, continued. But the Italian press 
latched onto it and eventually the Italian government stopped um, those exports of, of weapons. Um, so at some stage around Christmas time in 2015, you were you were at a reportedly Christmas drinks in New York and yeah. you got a call to come into the New York Times for a chat. And uh, did you know that they were interested in, I kinda, in joining I or did you just knew, think it was um, a formal discussion? Had, or? There's a friend of mine from the Storyful Days, Claire Wardle, um, who now runs First uh, Draft News uh, and they're experts on disinformation. Um, she had been brought in, they had done this innovation report, I don't know if anybody remembers that, back around 2014 and 15, where they appraised how the New York Times is performing and its digital offering, its digital journalism with competitors, and they realized that they had a lot of ground to catch up. So I think they started looking for people from non-traditional journalism backgrounds, and um, Claire kind of would be right in the mix with all of that and be well-connected with various different people, and I think she suggested that they chat to me and eventually happened and, and that was it and it happened really quickly. It was a Thursday afternoon for a, a brief chat and then uh, I was flying home Friday evening so there was a whole load of interviews on the Friday and then uh, got sent what's called an edit test um, where they try to probe your thinking and how you would approach different stories and that came in over Christmas. I was down in Rathkeel in Limerick with um my in-laws pat and margaret and uh basically spent christmas writing that and and then we ended up out over here in april it, was it uh, the, was the that test intense was that very yeah it was because you didn't want to screw yeah. it up you know and also it was you know there were tough stories that were suitable to this realm and other ones that weren't and and that kind of stuff but yeah, I remember it ended up running to about 16 pages uh, of just notes on these different stories. But uh... you seem like a very like from from our conversations over the last couple of weeks, and from everybody I know that you know, you're a very calm fella. Like, do do you? Do you Actually, do, we all get flustered once in a while. like. <laughs> 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 Um, I, 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 I'm also curious too that, like, you know, I was lucky enough. Um, I was lucky enough about five or six years ago to get a tour of the hallowed corridors of the New York Times, and like, you know, the culture and uh, of the institution is so strong. Like, wh when they're when they're bringing somebody new into the institution, like, uh, like, what are, are are there ways that they they talk to you about, you know, their tradition, their culture, you know, what what, what there what is their brand there's means, um, you know, what, there is you know, a week of orientation for. basically for any new employee, but I, I didn't really get much of that. Um, partly because I started um, freelance while I was over and back um, to Dublin while my visa was getting s sorted. So when I became an official employee, I kind of knew, uh, you know, a, a lot of stuff. I was already in the mix. Um, and also busy, and so I didn't sort of get get some of that. But you kind of you soak it up in there anyway. But it was, I mean, it's intimidating walking into a huge organization like like that. Like the Times wasn't on my radar. It wasn't something that I went to every day to 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 read news. It would come across my social feeds, and of course, I knew about the institution and and all of that sort of stuff. But um, you know, it, uh, you know. It, so so there were on one on the one side i'm saying i was kind of a little bit naive walking in there but on the other side when you do actually get in there and having come from two small startups and, and built some of it's kind of like it takes you a time a while to kind of figure out your place and what you can contribute in a place like that um and also 
And I get the sense that, like, you know, success has many fathers and mothers, but that, you know, you were, you were, came in on the back of this innovation report. And maybe suspicion is too strong a word, but like, you know, the new methods, the new way of doing to no, the new way of doing things. It wasn't readily accepted certain at the people, start. Certain ways of doing things. And, you know, uh, you know, I came into the video unit um, and that was its own sort of separate unit away from the from the newsroom. It was very much a service desk. Either did these big marquee documentaries or sort of news clips and, and, and fairly um, serviceable pieces from commodity you know, content that's out there on the wires and, and not really much extra journalism wrapped into it. And the idea was to sort of, you know, with Nancy Gauss, um, who became the, the head of the department um, and is a very close collaborator of mine, um, try to sort of, you know, bring bring up the base from the, from the bottom and maybe roll back the documentary side a little bit and, and, and be more relevant to sort of, um, you know, the offering original, journalism and original investigation um, and original sort of on the ground dispatches um, around what we're doing. But it takes time to, to do that and to, in a big unit, in a big sort of ship to, to move that, it just takes time. And it's kind of, you know, it's where you want to get to, I think, is one thing that I've learned here. You know, take, it, just, it just takes a little bit of time and goodwill and, and demonstrating, you know, what the value is uh, to the organization. And there was a particular story. You told me there was a particular story that really kind of flicked the switch, where you began to show the full power um, of the Kashyyyk chemical weapons attack. Probably, I had written up that you know it was clear that we weren't yeah. sort of capitalizing on what we what we could do in, in the investigative and report and original reporting sense, and so we wrote up this sort of strategy uh, document for what it would be and how, what it would look like, and that was. The day before the Kanchekun attack happened, sadly, lots of people were killed. Uh, yet another attack, and we did our news reports, but felt this uh, this was an opportunity to dive in. Um, and the Russians and Syrians were very specific in their denials, and this is why we didn't do it. And so we were able, through sourcing satellite imagery before and after footage from the ground, uh, geolocating it, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, P um, pick apart their argument and show that they were spinning around this attack like they always sort of did. Um, and in the course of our investigation, uh, President Assad gave an interview to AFP where he got into even more specifics, uh, which didn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, and so there's all sorts of things like, you know, the, you know, the sun rising when the attacks happened, you can hear roosters crowing in the background of a, uh, another video. So there's all these sort of, as with any of these investigations, there's never one sort of gotcha moment. It's it's like layering, layering evidence on top of on top of itself, and you're building a case almost, um, you know, like a trial lawyer would uh, in a very evidentiary way. Okay, well, what we're going to do now is I'm going to, we have a slide deck and um, I know loads of people are really interested in this. So I'm going to, I'm going to put up, I'm going to put up some slides and um, Malik, you're going to talk us through them. They're going to go through, I suppose, first of all, go, go through an overview of the type of work that it is. And we're going to look at those two uh, stories. We're going to look at some detail behind the Las Vegas shootings. And as I said, just to be careful for people, um, uh, 
one of these stories is about that terribly tragic event about two years ago where there was a shooter in Las Vegas who killed, I think, 68 people and injured a whole load of people. And the other one is the story that um, won the Pulitzer Prize about uh, bombings by Russia um, of hospitals in Syria. So just to be careful of that. So just give me one second there now and I will um, get these up here. And you can tell me when to... Uh, one sec now. You can tell me when to, to, to change Maliki and I can do that. Okay, um, we can go on to the next slide. I mean, our process basically is, um, you know, these are just some of the stories that we do, like say Khashoggi very briefly. I mean, that was showing that the Saudi explanation for this, uh, that it was a rogue agent um, or that he was alive, originally it was that he was still alive um, and he had walked out and we, were, we, we beseeched the Turkish authorities to assure his safety. And then it changed to actually a rogue agent um, killed him and uh, it was unexpected. But we were able to show that it was a pre clearly a premeditated job by you know, following the flight records, how quickly this team was mobilized, trawling social media and other websites to profile a lot of these uh, fellows, show that they were high-ranking officials in, in, um, in the Saudi ministries and even in the uh, royal court it itself uh, and that some of them were you know um trusted members of the crown prince's inner circle um and and cool. using uh, yeah so that was that um gaza uh, sorry the top right is duma um chemical weapons attack that was really um you know, high-tech um, reconstruction with collaborations from uh, Bellingcat and Forensic Architecture. The one on the bottom right, I think the, the reconstruct, retracing a bullet that killed a medic in Gaza, if anybody's interested in that, to me, that's sort of the, the zenith of anything that we've done in terms of like visual reconstruction um, and investigation. Uh, so anyway, basically it can apply to all sorts of different stories and scenarios. We can go on to the next slide. Um, and our, this is our process, is to just collect and analyze, like intelligence agencies, it's like collect, um, you know, reporting in all its different various forms, especially visual, um, and, and then analyze the hell out of it, low-tech and high-tech ways. Um, on to the next slide. Um, there are Times Insiders on the New York Times uh, website, by the way, I've written about a lot of these methods, if anybody's interested. Um, so, you know, it's it's ordering up satellite imagery and comparing the detail and satellite images before and after, which can give us a timestamp or a time window for an event happening. This is Khan Sheikhoun and proving that that building uh, that we uh, verified in other footage was bombed on that day. Um, you know, that involved also like getting original photos from the ground and extracting the geo coordinates from it as well. Um, timestamps, we'll go on to the next one as well. Uh, and then supplementing that with like plane and ship trackers. For instance, you know, the, this is like our follow up on the export of Italian bombs to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And after a while, some of these ships, which is a Saudi owned fleet, would turn off their transponders coming into Sardinia, pick them up and keep going. But with live streams and photographers and sources that we had cultivated in the ports in Sardinia, we knew when these um, shipments are coming. And so we were able to keep a database of them and keep track of what was happening, even as they tried to cloak it. Um, and then, you know, a lot of this is the collection and anal analysis is the reporting, but then there's the storytelling. And so when you're collecting so much evidence, the challenge often becomes, you know, how do you, how do you, tell the story, how do you distill and present the information in a way that's both transparent, but also not confusing to um, a viewer who has 
a cursory understanding of this story and hasn't like spent seven months in it like you have or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, we work very closely with our motion graphics animators and video editors and our scripting is kind of, you know, um, speaks very much to the evidence that we're presenting um, and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. And then we do 3D reconstructions often as part of that as well, as I've mentioned. Um, and Las Vegas, the challenge here in Las Vegas was that, you know, there was no independent time, timeline of what happened. And the police, you know, came under scrutiny because they had shifted the, the starting point. Their response uh, was was scrutinized. Um, there were there were allegations that they were concealing evidence, but they really were just kind of locking down their investigation until they had all of the facts. And we tried to set about establishing a timeline independent uh, using cell phone footage that people kept filming despite the rampage of bullets um, that, that uh, pr proved to be very, very useful in reconstructing it. So um, we can go on to the next one. Uh, so essentially, again, it's collect collection and organizing the footage into various different locations. Um, and then as you're listening to it, you want to the next slide, um, kind of, you know, very crudely detecting patterns um, in the information, um, which harkens back to the old programming days, um, which is um, was like the duration of each burst of fire, the interval to the next burst of fire, the the rate, the the, the pattern of fire, because he was using a modified machine machine guns, um, and then like saying, okay, maybe that's burst five, six, and seven. Oh, that might overlap with this three, four, and five, and that kind of stuff, and seeing if I could stitch it together. And uh, if you want to the next one, then doing that more forensically using the audio waveform, and every crack that you see there is either the ping of a bullet or the thud of the rifle in the background and lining those up to give an accurate bullet count, um, but also to sort of, um, in, in multiple videos, but also to sync up to sync up all of the videos. And if you go on to the next slide, basically by doing that repeatedly, you know, just came to understand that we had the whole event nonstop from the first couple of individual shots he fired right through, um, to the end and five minutes afterwards, actually subsequently we somebody sent us video where, where we think that the gunman took his own life and you can hear those gunshots too. Um, and um, so so that was it. And, and, and also because we were able to sync them up, we were able to examine what was going on at different places where you know an entrance remained closed and people couldn't escape. Um, uh, you know, the other places where people escaped and if you consider lay, layering over the police scanner audio and synchronizing that with this, and also the ambulance audio, you get a really sort of a rich, deep understanding of how this whole play, whole thing played out. And we also got secu security audio from inside the hotel as well. Uh, Adam Goldman had great sources there. Um, and so we were able to give a very sort of contextualized um, reconstruct of what happened. Um, yeah, we'll go on to the next slide. And this is just, you know, again, organizing all of the evidence into spreadsheets, there was one anomaly. We couldn't figure out what this uh, orange line, what this burst of fire was, but we realized that the only camera that picked that up was not, all the cameras in the fairground in the concert area didn't pick that up, but a camera over near the hotel, several hundred yards away where the gunman was, picked that up. And that was when he had 
turned his camera, his gun inside and shot down the corridor at um, an engineer and a security guard who had come onto the corridor. And that, that had created a, a, a gap, a, a, a span of time where people were allowed to flee and that those guys almost certainly saved lives. Uh, we can go on to the next one. So you, you, you know, part of this is um, we didn't use this footage because somebody was trapped under a stage and he didn't see much, but we could hear the gunshots. Um, and by reaching out to these individuals, getting their original um, files, uh, you have what's called file metadata, which is the file properties, the, the, the hour, minute, and second that this video was filmed. And by plotting those onto our timeline, if you go on to the next slide, there were other sort of like clues as you go frame by frame through the footage or the police body cam footage, you got timestamps there as well. And by sort of plotting those onto our, our line and establishing when they are, we can track back to this, the, the start of this and establish the second that it began. Or I think most of the videos led back to um, a three second window when this thing started. And so we're there, like the real piece, Maliki, just about corroboration and context, and that even, even like, so that if you, you know, if you can, if you can gather publicly, in this case, you know, mobile phone footage, um, and that you can, it's almost like a patchwork quilt of truth yeah. together from individual moments. It is, as I said, it's like it's never one thing. It's that it's that patchwork of of evidence that you're layering and trying to get an understanding, and it's definitive because. You know, you're seeing it for yourself, and the the viewer is seeing it as well, and uh, and they can kind of um, uh, assess and judge it for themselves too. Sure. Um, next one, um, yeah, and then this is a, this is the storytelling aspect of it. You know, how do you tell a chaotic story like this? And you can see the top. We're using what's called a TikTok. Um, you know, a, a minute by minute, and we're going burst by burst. This is what's happening. You know, the, the, the this is on the thirty second floor where you've got the um, this, the security guard saying it's at the end of the hallway. The gunman is there, um, using audio waveforms to sort of visualize that. Go into the, we can kind of scan through the next ones, I guess. Well, just one question on this, and, and yeah. like in the research for the chat today, like I'm fascinated by like the process of reduction, and yeah. it takes hundreds of hours and loads of footage, and this notion that less is more. And yeah. that, like the the the, I, the New York Times brand is visual investigations. So I'm assuming that there's a strong imperative for a visual aspect to it. And then you know this thing like you know kill your darlings, you know less, 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 and like you know the the, the you know the sharper you make it, the, the more impactful the story will be. You must have to leave an awful lot of things behind to get to that point. You do, but it's essential. It is that sort of kill your darlings uh, thing, and we're constantly sort of trimming our our scripts. Although now we've got to a point where we know something is going to be extraneous and awkward and, and wedged in and we're going to pull it out. So we're getting, excuse, excuse me, from going, going from 20 versions of a script, we're probably now to averaging 10. But, um, uh, you know, it's... Um, and does it start with the script so that like before you get involved in with the graphics and with all of that sort of stuff that you need a really tight script before you decide to in the same way that you know all great movies no matter how what the pyrotechnics are they need a they need a brilliant script to bring it to life they do my process is as i'm reporting and trying to organize my thoughts and organize the revelations into sort of different buckets and um and so um and then it's a then it's a matter of like which is which is the most important one to come first and how, how you know what's your what's your tool basically you know what's your weapon we have all of this great 
great reporting now choose your weapon is it going to be an interactive is it going to be a video what type of video is it going to be what techniques and what story structures are we, are we going to use and is are most suitable to that and then within that how do we focus really tightly on it and then of course our video editors and, and, and animators are like really skilled storytellers and, and, um, and visual artists basically and it's everything about um you know like the track the movement the movement of the images uh, the information and not overburden or there's probably even too much information on the screen right here um you know not overburdening the viewer keeping it moving as well keeping interest you have said in the past that you can judge how successful as like you have been in telling a story with how long somebody stays on a video and that when you do the meta analysis on when you stick a video up um it'll like same way with this webinar we'll know at the end who stayed to the end and who left halfway through that, that that's the real litmus test for you it is and we have an audience team that like are very deliberate around that it, the headline the cover image are very important and they are they differ depending on the platform as well um and uh you know the timing of when it comes out is very important as well so we work with the homepage team like there's a whole science to that side of it to the to the delivery side of it as well Zainab Khan has like worked wonders in building a really um uh engaged youtube audience for us which is completely different to the audience that we have on site which is different again to the audience we have in print we've started to print these videos and work with the print designers and then that's different again to the audience that we have on on twitter um or, or on facebook um I'm and curious, i'm just curious i'm curious about this thing of like you know in software terms you talk about the user interface or the user experience and that if like if you you know your team spend hundreds of hours on a story um it's distilled into a script like the visual style of how it's told um the kind of you know who 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 says look this is the treatment it should get or you know i think this is how we can do it is it collaborative or like is there a point where you said to the visual people look this is the serious reporting here what have you guys got to to bring it to the next level no it's usually it's collaborative and it would be like me as a senior producer or whitney uh, who's also a senior producer on our team with our executive editor mark uh, uh, Scheffler, um, you know, deciding that, um, and Nancy Gauss might weigh in as well, who's heads the heads the video department. Uh, but usually, you have a sense of what the story is going to be. Like this morning, I was scripting another story, very rough. Had a quick meeting with our animator and video editor, and we've decided an approach, and then we'll refine it as we go. Uh, but we'll check in in a couple of hours uh, with Mark as well and say, look, this is the direction that it's taking. Uh, and that kind of stuff so it is collaborative and it's um you know it's it's everybody sort of doing what they're supposed to do in in the in the process um and listening to each other as well you know okay let's let's keep going with the slides sorry i broke your flow there <laughs> yeah um um oh yeah so this is i mean just additional reporting you know this is we work with our graphics team as well and they're very good at um at, at, you know sketching out floor plans from uh designs and stuff like that and we're just adding animation and here showing the doors that he locked and the camera that he rigged up outside and this is as one of those workmen um those staff uh, came into the hallway etc so you're kind of explaining every moment you can go on to the next one yeah and that actually like if anybody who's on the ch anyone who's on the webinar has seen the video for me this really brought it to life and that between the last image and this image you know in your mind's eye you can begin to imagine kind of what happened yeah, exactly. That's it. Um, you know, 
where the police first arrived, or at least where we first saw them arriving. They may have arrived, I think they possibly arrived to the rear of the hotel first. Uh, but there was also another detail where there was, you know, because we have the police scanner audio, we know that there was a, an officer on the 29th floor or on the 31st floor, I, I can't remember which one, you know, very, very nearby. And one question we had was, well, what happened to that uh, police officer? And it turned out we included that into in our piece. Um, and it turned out that 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 you know poor fella froze, you know, with, with the, the fear of going up and confronting this guy who was armed to the teeth. Um, uh, so you you get all of these little sort of details and curiosities in in analyzing uh, all of the evidence. But anyway, cool. yeah, next one. And this is like the, the police, you know, identifying where the police were uh, when they came under fire. So they definitely attracted. Uh, some of some of the the gunfire as well, which again allowed more people to to flee, and they're here trying to figure out where the shots were coming from. Still, even you know four minutes into it, just kind of goes this to show. Is, what, this, what is, um, this is the second story that we're going to look at, and this is yeah. the story that won the Pulitzer Prize. And um, a different a different type of story, different challenges. Uh, the the Las Vegas story was obviously on American soil. This brings that whole um, distance piece, verifying information, finding different sources, collating information, uh, and other challenges like that. So let, let's talk through this. So we had been, um, sorry, we had been, you know, like March 15, 2011 was when I joined Storyful and Mark Little assigned me back then to like the origins of, of, of the of that sort of those democratic protests which were happening in Dara and the South and over the years myself and Phelan and Joe Galvin and uh, others co kept covering that and so I've been you know familiar with what's going on there over years and tracking it but over the last couple of years hospitals have been bombed repeatedly um, and it seemed to be a deliberate strategy of Assad and the Russians in trying to retake the area to crush civilian life and so we had been investigating that and that the patterns were very very clear um, and in the course of that um, you know we Mark Scheffler our editor in the, in the New York Times pushed us to try to uh, get accountability for those. We could tell that story about the deliberate attacks, and that was bad enough. But if we could get evidence showing, you know, who was doing what attacks and the worst attacks, then that would be even better. Um, and in the course of that, we, you know, in our reporting, we realized that there's a network of spotters, for want of a better word, uh, who listen into um, uh, the audio, the, the the radio transmissions of pilots, Syrian and Russian pilots, as they're operating in the skies. They've got people who are constantly watching different air bases out of which Syria and Russia separately operate. They're watching, they're spotting them in the skies as well, and they're conveying all of this on Twitter as an early warning system to civilians, but also over the radio to doctors and sort to rescuers um, who are out in the field as well. And somebody started recording that we knew that, that, that they were doing this but we found out that somebody was recording it and that we could obtain those files and we got a dump of about three months of those pilot recordings um which was a great starting point for us and so then the challenge became you know you've got they're all like five ten seconds in length and so you've got you know thousands and thousands of recordings um you know for a, a week um, and you know we had to develop this system to process them, to translate them, to decipher the jargon, identify 
defected Syrian pilots and former so Soviet pilots to, to help us with that and understand how they worked. So there was all of that traditional reporting, but essentially... And a lot of resources go into that, I would imagine. A lot of resources. We had to muscle up. I mean, there was a core team of about five of us, six of us on it, uh, but we hired in um, three uh, Russian and Syrian um, uh, speakers as well to, to go through that. We had a Russian video editor on the story as well. Um, you know, so it was uh, mo motion graphics as well. Drew, jo Drew Jordan uh, worked on this, and David Botti, another colleague on our team. So there was a it was a big team of about nine, ten of us going at it for months. Um, uh, but we were ultimately able to find out the the very minute that an attack happened on the ground, and that was important because the pilot recordings were time coded, and if we could get the minute, we could check out the recordings in the sky. What were the Syrian pilots and what were the Russian pilots doing at that in that minute? And what were they planning leading up to it? And had they shared coordinates, we were able to identify the different pilots because they always use their, their, their code name, basically, uh, their code number when they're reporting back to ground control. And so understanding that allowed us to know what pilots were circling where at what times and what runs they were doing. Um, we were able to, like, so, this is a video of the aftermath of a, of a bombing, which is very strong visually. Um, it's an underground hospital. You can see them running out of it. Kafarnabel, um, it was actually hit seven times. This, this hospital has been bombed seven times, if you can believe it. Um, but that video is useless to us, other than the, the visuals. And so, you know, whereas a news report on your nine o'clock news might use this, what we want is video footage, the original file taken on the original device, of the moment of that attack, because that will give us the precise second that it happened, if we can uh, verify that the, the clock settings are correct. And so we're looking for, you know, two, three, four instances of that, or an incident report, or a WhatsApp message that was sent from the hospital um, manager to the hospital organizers. And so all of that evidence is what we were gathering. Um, you know, so it's you're, you're retrospectively going back to that moment and finding the people who were digitally recording that instant and once we can do that then we can for the first time relate what's going on in the skies say that pilot 33 was bombing down the street from from here 20 minutes ago because we heard him taking coordinates and we know that he hit three times at the exact time that the the, the this this hospital was hit three times five minutes apart and so there's nobody else in the sky that's matching that pattern and so you're putting the jigsaw together like that and that was basically the process okay so this so this is like this is the second airstrike on that same hospital um right so the first the first image you just saw was um a bombing on may 5th uh last year we published in october and if you be could believe it that was waved in the faces of the russians at the united nations security council three weeks later they come back and they bomb the same hospital again three times five minutes apart this is the second strike so the guy in the roof heard the aircraft coming ran went up onto his roof and he was there in time to capture the second one there was another guy you could see held his cell phone up as well we we found him we got his original file and so we're able to compare the two and at this stage the hospital had installed cctv and so we got that cctv as well and we were able to match all three of them together to 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 check the interval in the um in the strikes so if you go on to the next slide uh, this is the CCTV, and you can see it's timestamped. Now, there was a difference between the camera settings in the two, but if you go on to the next slide, um, 
we can, you know, this is the interval. We're interested in the interval. We're also interested in the time, but we're interested in the interval. And if you go to the next slide, you can see the interval. This is when the pilot 31 is saying, I worked it, I worked it, I worked it, which is their code word, Srabotal, for I've bombed it. And if you just go to the next slide, you know, essentially the 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 interval between those three matches perfectly. There's a two second gap, I think, in in one of them, which you know we would explain through sort of like a human delay and saying, yeah, I've 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 I've, I've dropped the bomb, or maybe he was an extra forty meters away when he dropped the bomb um, from the from the previous one, and it took two seconds longer or whatever. But it's very very it, it lines up you know perfectly, and it matches the cell phone footage that the other two uh, witnesses had has, had collected. And so um, I think this is this like a, a, a GIF, is it? Is it play? No, uh, yeah, play. it doesn't play. Um, so um, basically, uh, if you go, yeah, I mean, over those three slides, what we're doing is like it's kind of showing a wall of sound. You'll see it in the video if you watch it. Uh, of these, um, you know, these these code words that we had to translate over months. Um, the second one is like the key code words leading into an airstrike. How they received their target confirm it, lock it in, and then confirm that they've bombed it. And then we also paired all of this reporting with, you know, months and months of flight logs uh, that, you know, in in, a, in addition to the audio recordings, as I said at the outset, you know, they're logging every spotting of an aircraft, be it Russian or Syrian, if they know the model of the aircraft, because there's only about six models of aircraft, and the Russians fly some, the Syrians fly others, and there are a couple of them that they both fly. Um, they're 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 logging that in. They're saying the direction that it's heading in, where they spotted it, and the time that they spotted it. And we know that this is not filled in retroactively to sort of create evidence because these are as soon as it enters that spreadsheet, it's automatically tweeted out to warn civilians. And so we were able to 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 verify these that these logs are what people actually saw in real time as well. And so that's just another layer of evidence that we're spotting over. It allows it tells us when Russians were flying in certain areas at certain times. And so we're also looking, sometimes the cameras will shoot up and you'll actually catch the plane um, on its mission. And they have very dis distinct models as well um, uh, that we can identify from 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 the aircraft. And so, like Christian Trebert, who's um, a whiz kid at all of this stuff, he's an absolute brilliant open source reporter. Um, you know, he had photographs of all of the different models around his desk, um, and uh, you should check out his Twitter threads and this stuff. And then we're also identifying. I mean, we talk to people who study the Syrian and and, uh, and Russian forces as well as former members of them to understand their their military capabilities, the weapons that they used. Only the Russians have precision guided weapons. Uh, only the Russians have these um, bunker busters. And so we're analyzing the, um, uh, with delayed, this is a delayed fuse one. So it enters and then you see the flash and then you see the the the, the explosion from underground coming up. Um, and so we're, we're analyzing uh, that as well as part, as part of the evidence. So let, let's just, look, that's, that, that's, that's unbelievable. And I just want to kind of, a lot of people have put questions in here. So to round off the discussion, let's, let's just do a, let's do a deep dive. And I, I'm just going to pop down. Uh, let me just, let me just get us back on the screen. One sec there. And you don't need to see my head. Oh God. Okay. I'm full of it now. Uh, there we go. Okay, cool. Technology, small children and animals. Okay. 
Um, let's go down here. L let me start you off. I, I heard you uh, giving a talk a while back online about like some nerdy stuff on tools and um, just some of your favorite online tools um, that you use. Um, I see Matthew Mulligan here is asking a question on this. Um, you know, stuff like you know having a personalized Google Chrome dashboard that you can log into that will configure itself from anywhere, things like that. Yeah, I mean, if you create a profile on uh, Google Chrome, you can basically have create a digital workstation that will carry anywhere with you to, you know, an internet cafe in Manila, if you like. You know, you you could just log in and it'll download and it'll sync, and you have your workstation and you're able to 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 work there. Um, and um, that's what I do. So what I'm looking at now is not folders of bookmarks, but like a dashboard of just the, just the icons, not even descript descriptions. So I've like a crunched a load of icons on my quick reference tools together. Anytime I open a start pay, uh, sorry, um, a new tab in Google Chrome, I use a tool called start.me uh, to uh, which organizes all of these like quick links as well. I've got one for satellite imagery, one for downloading videos, one for Facebook tools, Twitter tools, YouTube tools, etc. So you just organize your workstation and have it ready and, and familiarize yourself with these tools, uh, flight trackers, marine trackers, etc. There's a great Chrome Chrome extensions then are the third thing. So Google Translate, uh, Google Image, so you can do a quick image uh, reverse uh, reverse image search. What reverse image search does is it'll tell you if an image is old or new. And um, so very often a form of disinformation is like recirculating older images as relevant to as, as a current event. Um, and so you can do that. There's a great... Um, one, I use Snagit then because we do a lot of screen grabs to annotate and that helps us like do with our mapping and all that sort of stuff. This story that we're doing at the moment of like step stage one, two, three, four, and five in a, in a, in a story, uh, mapping it out, how it all unfolded. Um, and it allows you to annotate those very quickly. There are other free tools out there that do that as well. What else am I looking at? Invid, uh, the Invid EU project, the video verification tool. That is great. It has a suite of tools inside in it. It has an even better Twitter search than Twitter itself. It allows you to search for a date, but also the hour and minute. And so that was very useful in looking at Syrian and Russian attacks and when they were first reported, but also where were attacks reported in the uh, previous hours as well, so that we can try to uh, identify where certain pilots were and things like that. Um, uh, God. Who posted what is another one. There's uh, uh, an uh, advanced Facebook tool. Facebook itself has improved somewhat. Um, the search tool, you just need to play around with the tabs and the, uh, the, the settings on the side. But who posted what? And then there's, I mean, Google is uh, a great search tool. You just do a site search on Google site, colon Instagram.com, and you can, you know, you can do all sorts of things there. You can search for you know people's comments and uh, and various different things you can search you know you for youtube videos within a certain custom date range if you want to do an arc you know a historical youtube search youtube itself doesn't allow you to do that uh you can uh, search for twitter lists um site um you know call on twitter.com forward slash asterisk so it could be any user lists um, and then you can search for, uh, you know, if there is a breaking news story out of Chattanooga, 
in the States. There's very few Twitter lists called Chattanooga that are going to be about anything other than Chattanooga. So yeah. you probably have local journalists who have created their Chattanooga news and you can just you know, monitor, merge those and monitor that list if it's a story that you're interested in. If you're, um, if you're listening and you're a young journalist and you're interested in this, I suppose, unlike other forms of journalism, most of the stuff is there open source. And um, what advice yeah. would you give somebody who, who's, who's, into, who's, who's into it and wants to get into it? Just learn, just try it out. Just keep trying it. That's what we did. We experimented at Storyful and found out what worked and, and, and what, what didn't. And you have to keep on top of it because these tools you know, die, uh, methods become obsolete, the platforms change, their APIs and what's available. So you just kind of have to keep on top of it and keep fresh with it. Um, and just, uh, you know, read about it. Bellingcat has a terrific toolkit, like really deep, really extensive, but like anything, they keep it up to date as well. Um, and uh, you should check out, you should follow their reporters. On Twitter, I've got an open source um, OSINT list, and that's like some of the best open source reporters and investigators who do this type of digital sleuthing. You can follow them. There's a Thursday quiz time that these guys uh, and gals put out, and they just challenge, they'll take a photograph and challenge people to find out where and when it was taken. So all of those sorts of skills, I would just like, just try it. And then test your curiosity. The amount of stories that we found just by spotting something, being curious about it, digging around a little more, seeing what we can Google about it, or search Twitter about it, or going back to that day, what were people saying about it? Then suddenly you've got all of this, you know, evidence as a starting point that's visual or temporal um, or spatial in nature that allows you to sort of like recreate that, that, that event or dive into it a little bit um, more deeply. Just a couple of questions to finish then. Um, when we were talking the other day, you were saying that like, you have a set of principles to, to apply to a potential new story uh, to see is it something that is something that you will point your resources at because everybody has limited resources. Tell us a little bit about the principles that you when someone comes with a story um, and you run you run the story through your your principle filter uh, to see does, does it stack up? Yeah, is it? Um, I mean, the starting point is often just what I described, just being a bit nosy, but also having a nose for 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 something that you think you know has unanswered questions or there's a, essentially a problem to solve. I also often describe this as problem solving, like, you know, the, you know, a story is not as clean as it may be, or there's like, uh, you know, the, the, a government is denying that it did something when you, you're, you're suspicious that, uh, that that may not be the case. And so we'll often prospect, do very quick prospecting, like I talk, talked about, like, like seeing what visuals are there, can we verify them? Can we timestamp them critically? Um, and then when we're appraising it, like is it visual in nature? Um, is it a, is it an original idea, or will it will it advance the story or the reporting on the story or the understanding of the story um, more? Will it be revealing? Um, you know, will it? You know, will 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 there be? Is the reveal sufficient? for us to spend three weeks or three months on something. And how big is that reveal? Because the further you get away from event, the reveal needs to be that much bigger. Um, uh, and what's the impact? I mean, we're, there's any number of stories that come across our desk every week and uh, things that we could chase down. And often we do, and we just decide very quickly, we've got a bit better at that and saying, no, it's not worth pursuing. Uh, even though we have visuals, there's just there isn't a journalistic um, merit in 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 doing it. 
so it's, so it's all of those things and the impact can help sort of the framing or the pursuit of, of new evidence or new rep new reporting on it um, whether we need to get on the ground you know whether we we need to um, talk to people get to the scene drone the scene etc cetera, etc cetera. just I suppose just to finish um, the Pulitzer Prize um, award has been on the go for 102 years I think it started in 1918 um, and since it started in 1918 the New York Times has won um, I think about 118 uh, Pulitzer Prizes. It's a very elite club uh, to come from uh, software to the fringes of journalism to discovering your craft. And I suppose when you when you look at your team and from the discussions we have, it reminds me of that um, that TV series, The A Team. I've got a crack unit of misfits in that uh, they're not people who would be on traditional pathways. And I think you know from talking to you part of the honor is is that like they mightn't be the best writers um you know but you know whether it's uh, empathy technical skill know-how dogged curiosity determination patience um they bring um technical know-how so i suppose after the success what's next for you and what's next for your team when you get to that plateau you know wh where's the next place to go um yeah i mean that's exactly how I feel about our team. It's it, like it is it is built from scratch in the New York Times as a kind of a, a little startup within this much bigger organization, and we can we we're, we're able to tap into those resources, you know, when we need to. And like it's incredibly fulfilling, you know, just sort of getting that that recognition um, for for what we, we've been doing. Um, and the team is like. For anybody who doesn't know, I mean, uh, Barbara was the first to join me on the team. She's a Brazilian journalist who uh, worked part-time at Storyful, actually, and came in as an intern, but is now like, a central member of the team. Christoph Kettle came from Amnesty, where he's a satellite imagery expert, like not a journalist. Um, Christian Trebert came from Bellingcat um, and was just, you know, uh, a young journalist who was traveling the world and was interested and was interested in reporting but realized he could do much better reporting in a digital space um and won an innovation prize in the european press prize anyway evan hill joined uh, christian is uh, christoph is austrian christian is uh, dutch uh, mui Zhao has just joined she's chinese um so there's a real sort of mix of backgrounds but like all motivated by the same things and there's a great sort of sense of um cohesiveness and camaraderie and there's a great culture in the team i think which is really important one of the things that i learned from storyful um and the question i forgot sorry i was waxing lyrical <laughs> but no but what's, what was the question was what's next? yeah what's next oh what's next i mean do the day job you know uh, i mean it doesn't change much i suppose there is an expectation maybe that we continue to do stuff but we like we had been doing good work and we were happy with the journalistic results we were getting irrespective of of prizes you know they're they're nice and it's great and, and it's fantastic and you can say that you're a pulitzer winner and all the rest of it but you know the biggest thing for us was putting evidence out there that you know the russians are culpable in war crimes and that that may be used in uh you know a court setting sometime um and that there are watchdogs out there that are keeping an eye on human rights abusers and to say, okay, we'll find you out. Um, and that's the message that we want from our from our journalism. And um, so that's what we're going to continue to do, you know. Um, you know, it 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 probably gives us 
you know, leverage. Like, and these awards are very arbitrary, you know, like your best work mightn't be recognized. Like I, I wish the Gaza stuff had, had got more recognition. Um, but we'll use them as leverage um, internally to expand. And I think we might grow so significantly later this year. Um, so so that's what, we, that's what we plan to do. And we just have to change our process and adapt as we become a little bit bigger as well. And I'm sure, like, I'm look. I know from talking to you that your your heart is very much in in West Limerick. And when, whenever yourself and Siobhan get to bring Jeremy, Sarah, and Emmett back to your mom and dad, that uh, you know, I know we're all social distancing, and I know that's been, I suppose, difficult in the last few months. But there'll definitely be bonfires out, and uh, um, it'll be it'll be well celebrated when you come back. And um, everybody here is really proud of what you did, and in the research. In the research that I've been doing, in that like, it's really heartwarming to see somebody who um, has a gift for bringing people on, who values team members, uh, who values collective effort, and thanks for sharing your time with us today. And just to say to everybody um, on the stream, thanks for coming along. We're going to send you along an email. Uh, in the email, we will give you a recording, so you'll be able to go back over all the stuff and all the chat will be in it. We'll also have an offer on Media HQ. And as I said at the start, look, our mission is to connect people with the media and journal journalists. We'll be doing more in conversations with and we'll be doing more webinars. So if there's anything that you want us to cover or any topic um, in, in your job that you think is useful, um, let us know and we'd be only glad to tune in. One of the great things about lockdown is that we have found new and innovative ways to have meaningful and touching conversations with people. So uh, thanks, Maliki, and thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you all again soon. I was just going to say thank you, Jack. I'll, I'll try to answer some of the questions on Twitter with the hashtag later if I get a chance. I, I know that, that, that a couple of them didn't get in, but yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jack, for the interest. Right, bye. Bye-bye.